Welcome to this week's edition of the Be A Better Ally podcast. On this week, we have Joe Langford, the author of the excellent book, The Pride Guide, a guide to sexual and social health for LGBTQ youth. Joe is going to talk to us about um, some of the content that's in that book, and we will be sure to link to it in the show notes. Uh, I would highly recommend if you work with young people or you have young people living in your house, this is a great one to add to your bookshelf collection. Thanks again for being on the show. Um, I'm wondering if you can talk to us specifically about the chapter entitled Intimate Violence. Uh, in your book, you talk about the importance of knowing what healthy relationships look like. Can you speak more to the work both educators and parents can be doing to start conversations with children about ways to understand whether or not a relationship is healthy? Hi, thank you so much for having me on your podcast. Of course, I, I like to think that there's some objective or universal lines around health, the go-tos of trust, communication, boundaries, etc. But what construes healthy in terms of relationships really is a values issue that varies from family to family as well as individual to individual. We all use those words, especially any of us that raise or work with kids. As professionals, as parents, we all do it. Appropriate, inappropriate, healthy, unhealthy, we use these words all the time, but when kids are sitting down on the couch in my office and I ask them like what those words mean, they can't always tell me. I really encourage parents to make time to sit down as a group, as a team, and create operating definitions for those words for their family. Where we describe, this is what our family defines as healthy. This is the line where we think appropriate becomes inappropriate. And in the context of intimate violence, I want to point out a few things that tend to not be acknowledged very often. One is that dating violence happens in the queer community as well, that LGBT folks, particularly kids, are not immune. In fact, depending on which studies you read, LGBT kids can experience even higher levels of intimate violence than their straight counterparts. This is a myth that queer people are somehow immune to this. And a second quick point is that dating violence takes many forms. Intimate violence can also include verbal abuse, digital abuse, such as invading your privacy, non-consensual images, or cyber-stalking, and anything that takes away a person's ability to control how or where they engage in sexual contact. Everything from non-consensual touch to removing a condom without telling you. These things aren't talked about much, and because of that, it doesn't show up on many young people's radar as domestic violence. I really like that idea of thinking about what we're not adding to the radar when we have conversations about healthy relationships. Uh, and I, I really love that you preface the book by saying that some parents may just need to give the book to their child, whilst others might want to be a little bit more involved. The idea that every child might need different support with their sexual slash social health is really important. Could you clarify how a parent might actually go about assessing where their child is at in terms of uh, the child's readiness to have conversations like these? Yes, we don't like thinking of our children as sexual creatures any more than they enjoy thinking of us that way, but that big picture information, they tend to be pretty hungry for it. So in light of that, I tend to recommend getting a book. Obviously, I like mine. Um, I wrote it with this in mind, actually, to get a book, to read it, give it to the kid and say, 
hey, I think it's time to talk about this stuff, or hey, I think this issue is up for you, read chapter three and let's go for a bike ride tomorrow and chat. And that sounds super stressful, but it really can work. We don't want to torture the kid with an hour-long discussion. We want to keep it short and sweet and try to do it shoulder-to-shoulder, like in the car while driving around or playing a video game or making dinner, not like staring into their eyes. Of course, you could just give them the book straight away or think a little bit outside the box. I have a family I'm working with right now. The kid's reading the book and then is tasked with coming up with three or four questions from each chapter, and then they email it to their parent who responds in a pen pal kind of way, and it's really working for them both. I've also had a couple of clients over the years dog ear pages of my books and leave them lying around for the parents to find is a signal that it's time to talk about this thing, and it really does work like a charm. Of course, when or if something is clearly up, like you suspect dating violence is happening, or you really feel certain your kid is struggling with some identity stuff or depression or you know that they become sexually active, then as parents, we just got to roll up the sleeves and jump in there and start talking. There's always degrees of the right or wrong way to do this, and parents need to not be afraid to just do it. We all screwed up in some way or another, and no one has experienced the ideal way to do this. And the big secret is that we're all going to screw up our kids in the same ways we were all kind of screwed up by ours, but... By virtue of the fact that we're tracking their development and motivated to help them, any screw-ups are going to be relatively minimal, done out of love, and probably will make for funny stories over Thanksgiving in a couple of decades. In Chapter 15, you have guidance on how an LGBTQ plus child might introduce a prospective partner to their family. From the work that you've done with teens, can you give parents a bit of advice in terms of what they should or shouldn't do when meeting a queer child's partner? A general rule with queer kids is don't do anything differently than you would for a not-LGBT kid. Specifically, say, your lesbian daughter wants her girlfriend to stay over in her room, or this son is making out with his boyfriend in your kitchen while you're trying to make dinner. If you would be uncomfortable letting a straight kid do those things, then set your limits. But don't shut something down or be too permissive with them just because your kid is queer. Generally, what comes up for a lot of parents are the visuals... Some of the biggest issues of dealing with a queer child are seeing the visual images. And one of the big barriers, particularly for gay folks, is because it is a sexual preference. Just by its very nature, when it's mentioned or referenced, it tends to conjure up a visual. Maybe some of your listeners have given a passing thought to Donald Trump and Melania doing it, but probably not until I just said that. And I'm actually really kind of sorry about that. But think about the last wedding you attended. Did you visualize that particular couple actually having sex? Probably not, but for most people, when we hear about the lesbians who moved in down the street, or that cousin or the nephew who just came out, we see it in a way that makes a lot of people uncomfortable, simply because it's more rare or different than their typical day-to-day experience. So I think it's just a good idea to sort out for ourselves where we are on that comfort spectrum with that and then do whatever work we need to do to desensitize ourselves or normalize that experience. I have a fun excerpt from the book that, if I can read it, it wasn't that long ago that things like showing Lucio Ball actually pregnant on television freaked viewers out. In the 60s, Uhura, who was black, and Captain Kirk, who was white, kissed on Star Trek and America freaked out. Carol and Mike Brady were the first couple on television ever to be shown in bed together. 
And in the 80s, there was a plethora of shows, Murphy Brown, Designing Women, Golden Girls, in which women were shown living viable, independent lives as people, professionals, and parents without the necessity of men. We've moved you know, kind of far and away from Klinger and Jack Tripper in terms of the portrayal of queer characters in visual media, but watching movies and television shows that show gay characters expressing affection and their sexuality can help with that desensitization. And so now there's tons of examples of LGBT characters that can be found in mainstream media, and those images can help us normalize the experience, because none of us want to see our kids making out with somebody else. But if seeing your kids snuggling with a partner on the couch or holding hands or kissing goodbye is making you uncomfortable, then it's a good idea to sort out where that energy is coming from. Your book does an excellent job of being aware of the way that social media intersects with sex ed today. And your next book will focus on online safety. Can you tell us a little bit more about the motivation behind authoring that text? And can you share one big aha you had in your research process? Thank you so much. I think that just more and more, we cannot talk to young people right now about sex without talking about technology. And we can't talk about tech without talking about sex. These things are intricately combined now in a way that I believe will not be entangled. So in addition to the now three books around sex, puberty, and relationships and growing up that I have, I've also just dropped a short ebook around how to start the tech talks as like a side door entry point for families who may have a hard time hitting the sex bodies relationship stuff head on or who are still dealing with younger kids. For the Pride Guide, I think my motivation came out of a combination of the larger picture culture that we're dealing with right now politically and the shock I felt when I realized that there was no puberty books in print for trans kids. It's a topic that I deal with so regularly and the need is so palpable. I think I just kind of had naively assumed someone had taken care of it. And when I realized that there wasn't a legitimate and directed resource for those kids, I went for it. The languaging was the biggest challenge for me. Not only like the Rubik's Cube of sex, gender, expression, orientation, but the pronoun stuff, the cultural lingo, and then trying to keep the factual biological references to body parts and processes as open as possible in terms of language. Language, I think, is a really big deal, and words are important and very personal to some people. And I'm sure that I will upset people with my book, but um, I put a lot of effort into not doing that. I added a section in the book specifically for parents because one of the most consistent things that I've seen in my 20 years of private practice is the impact of parental attitudes on kids. Whether it's sharing values, setting limits, supporting them in times of trauma, or kicking them out on the street, the behaviors of a parent impact a child, good and bad, in significant, significant ways. And parenting and supporting a queer kid is different than with non-queer kids. The dynamics are different, the stakes are higher, and as I say in the book, being LGBT is the only minority in which you may not have similar people in your home or even in your extended family, with very few exceptions, Jewish kids tend to grow up with Jewish people. Latino kids get to grow up in a Latino culture. So straight parents of queer kids have to develop a relationship with these things so that they can provide their kids those same bigger picture ideas, the history, the traditions that ultimately are going to increase their resiliency and their pride and reduce the harm that they experience in the world. 
Thank you so much to Joe Langford for being on this week's episode. We will be sure to link to Joe's many excellent books that you might want to check out. And if you'd like to connect with Joe Langford on Twitter, you can find him at beheroes.net.